The following is an adaptation of F. Scott Fitzgerald's *The Great Gatsby*. This radio play podcast was produced by the Columbus Civic Theater with funding from the Greater Columbus Arts Council, the Columbus City Council, and Mayor Ginther, and the individual support from listeners like you. Please help support this and other projects that serve the community and public around you. Visit www.columbuscivic.org to see how you can help. There was music from my neighbor's house through the summer nights. In his blue gardens, men and girls came and went like moths among the whisperings and the champagne and the stars. At high tide in the afternoon, I watched his guests diving from the tower of his raft or taking the sun on the hot sand of his beach. His Rolls Royce became an omnibus bearing parties to and from the city. At least once a fortnight, a corps of caterers came down. On buffet tables, spiced baked hams crowded against salads of harlequin designs. And pastry pigs and turkeys bewitched to a dark gold. In the main hall, a bar with a real brass rail was set up and stocked with gins and liquors and cordials. By seven o'clock, the orchestra arrived. No thin five-piece affair, but a whole pitful of oboes and trombones and saxophones and viols and cornets and piccolos and low and high drums. And not long after, the cars from New York are parked five deep in the drive. In the halls and the salons, and verandas are gaudy with primary colors, and hair shorn in strange new ways. The bar is in full swing, and the air is alive with casual innuendo and introductions forgotten on the spot. Already, there are wanderers, confident girls who weave here and there among the stouter and more stable, glide on through the sea change of faces and voices. Suddenly. One of these gypsies in trembling opal seizes a cocktail out of the air, dumps it down for courage, and dances out alone on the canvas platform. The party has begun. On the first night I went to Gatsby's house, I was one of the few guests who had actually been invited. A chauffeur. In a uniform of robin's egg blue, crossed my lawn early that Saturday morning, with a surprisingly formal note from his employer. Unlike me, people were not invited. They went there. They got into automobiles, which bore them out to Long Island, and somehow ended up at Gatsby's door. Once there, they conducted themselves according to the rules of behavior associated with amusement parks. <coughs> Dressed up in white flannels. I went over to his lawn a little after seven, and wandered around rather ill at ease among swirls and eddies of people I didn't know. I was on my way to the cocktail table to get roaring drunk from sheer embarrassment when Jordan Baker came out of the house. I thought you might be here. I remembered you lived next door. Then, with Jordan's slender golden arm resting in mine, we sauntered about the garden. A tray of cocktails floated at us through the twilight, and we sat down at the table. I like large parties; they're so intimate. At small parties, there isn't any privacy. Jordan inquired of the girl beside her. Do you come to these parties often? 
The last one was the one I met you at. Wasn't it for you, Lucille? It was for Lucille, too. I like to come. I never care what I do, so I always have a good time. Somebody told me. The two girls and Jordan leaned together confidentially. Somebody told me they thought he'd killed a man once. She narrowed her eyes and shivered. We all turned and looked around for Gatsby. It was testimony to the romantic speculation he inspired. There was dancing now on the canvas in the garden. Old men pushing young girls backward in eternal, graceless circles. Superior couples holding each other torturously, fashionably, and a great number of single girls dancing alone. <laughs> By midnight, the hilarity had increased. The first supper, there would be another one after midnight, was now being served, and Jordan invited me to join her own party, who were spread around a table with a man of about my age. I had taken two finger bowls of champagne, and the scene had changed before my eyes into something significant, elemental, and profound. At a law in the entertainment, the man looked at me and smiled. Your face is familiar. Weren't you in the 3rd Division during the war? Why, yes. I was in the 9th Machine Gun Battalion. I was in the 7th Infantry until June 1918. I knew I'd seen you somewhere before. We talked for a moment about some wet, gray little villages in France. Evidently, we lived in this vicinity. I just bought a hydroplane. Do you know of these things? Want to try in the morning? Want to go with me, old sport? Just near the shore along the sound? What time? Any time that suits you best. This is an unusual party for me. I haven't seen the host. I live over there, and this man Gatsby sent over his chauffeur with an invitation. I'm Gatsby. What? Oh, I, I beg your pardon. I thought you knew, old sport. I'm afraid I'm not a very good host. A butler hurried toward him with the information that Chicago was calling. He excused himself with a small bow that included each of us in turn. If you want anything, just ask for it, old sport. Excuse me. Amazing music rose from the orchestra, and then my eyes fell on Gatsby, standing alone on the marble steps and looking from one group to another with approving eyes. His short hair looked as though it were trimmed every day. I could see nothing sinister about him. I beg your pardon, Miss Baker. I beg your pardon, but Mr. Gatsby would like to speak to you alone. With me? Yes, madam. She got up slowly, raising her eyebrows at me in astonishment and followed the butler toward the house. I was alone and it was almost two. For some time, confused and intriguing sounds had issued from a long, many-windowed room which overhung the terrace. More waiting for Jordan to return. I finally imagined she had left with her party. There was the boom of a bass drum. The voice of the orchestra leader rang out suddenly above the echolalia of the garden. I felt it was time to leave. As I waited for my hat in the hall, the door of the library opened and Jordan Baker and Gatsby came out together. He was saying some last word to her, but the eagerness in his manner tightened abruptly into formality as several people approached him to say goodbye. I've just heard the most amazing thing. 
How long were we in there? Why, about an hour? It was simply amazing, but I swore I wouldn't tell it, and here I am, tantalizing you. Please come and see me. I joined the last of Gatsby's guests who were clustered around him. I wanted to apologize for not having known him in the garden. Don't give it another thought, old sport. And don't forget we're going up in the hydroplane tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. But as I walked down the steps, I saw that the evening was not quite over. Fifty feet from the door, a dozen headlights illuminated a bizarre and tumultuous scene. In the ditch beside the road, right side up but violently shorn of one wheel, rested a new coupe. A man and a long duster had dismounted from the wreck and now stood in the middle of the road looking from the car to the tire and from the tire to the observers in a pleasant, puzzled way. See? It went in the dick. How'd it happen? I know nothing whatever about mechanic. But how did it happen? Did you run into the wall? Don't ask me. I know very little about driving. Next to nothing. It happened, and that's all I know. Well, if you're a poor driver, you oughtn't to try driving at night. But I wasn't even trying. I wasn't even trying. Do you want to commit suicide? You're lucky it was just a wheel. A bad driver not even trying. You don't understand. I wasn't driving. There's another man in the car. The shock that followed this declaration found voice in a sustained, Ah, as the door of the coupe swung slowly open. The crowd, it was now a crowd, stepped back involuntarily, and when the door had opened wide, there was a ghostly pause. Then, very gradually, part by part, another man stepped out of the wreck. What's the matter? Did we run out of gas? Look! Half a dozen fingers pointed at the amputated wheel. He stared at it for a moment and then looked upward as though he suspected that it had dropped from the sky. It came off. At first I didn't notice we'd stop. When did tell me it was a gasoline station? At least a dozen men, some of them little better off than he was, explained to him that the wheel and the car were no longer joined by any physical bond. I'll back out. Burn rivers. But the wheel's off. There no harm in trying. <laughs> the caterwauling horns had reached a crescendo, and I turned away and cut across the lawn toward home. I glanced back once. A wafer of a moon was shining over Gatsby's house, making the night fine as before, and surviving the laughter and the sound of his still-glowing garden. A sudden emptiness seemed to flow now from the windows and the great doors, endowing with complete isolation the figure of the host who stood on the porch, his hand up in a formal gesture of farewell. At first I was flattered to go places with Jordan because she was a golf champion and everyone knew her name. I wasn't actually in love, but I felt a sort of tender curiosity. We had a curious conversation about driving a car once. It started because she passed so close to some workman that our fender flicked a button on one man's coat. 
You're a rotten driver. Either you ought to be more careful, or you ought not drive at all. I am careful. No, you're not. Well, other people are. What's that got to do with it? They'll keep out of my way. It takes two to make an accident. Suppose you met somebody just as careless as yourself. I hope I never will. I hate careless people. That's why I like you. For a moment I thought I loved her. But I am slow-thinking and full of interior rules that act as brakes on my desires. First, I had to get myself out of that tangle back home. I'd been writing letters once a week and signing them, Love Nick. On Sunday morning, while church bells rang in the villages along the shore, the world and its mistress returned to Gatsby's house and twinkled hilariously on his lawn. All these people, tens, hundreds maybe, came to Gatsby's house in the summer, accepted Gatsby's hospitality, and paid him the subtle tribute of knowing nothing whatever about him. New Yorkers, Yaleys, doctors and theatrical people, old moneyed clans who flipped up their noses like goats at whosoever came near. They came in, white knickerbockers, tuxedos and radiant gowns, senators, businessmen, movie stars, Broadway chorus girls and gamblers. A man named Clipspringer was there so often and so long that he became known as The Border. I doubt if he had any other home. At nine o'clock, one morning late in July, Gatsby's gorgeous car lurched up the rocky drive to my door. Good morning, old sport. You're having lunch with me today, and I thought we'd ride up together. He saw me looking with admiration at his car. It's pretty, isn't it, old sport? Haven't you ever seen it before? I'd seen it. Everybody had seen it. It was a rich cream color, bright with nickel, swollen here and there in its monstrous length with triumphant hat boxes and supper boxes and tool boxes and terraced with labyrinth of windshields that mirrored a dozen suns. And then came that disconcerting ride. We hadn't reached West Egg Village before Gatsby began leaving his elegant sentences unfinished. Look here, old sport. What's your opinion of me, anyhow? Well, I'm going to tell you something about my life. I don't want you to get a wrong idea of me from all these stories you hear. I'll tell you God's truth. I am the son of some wealthy people in the Middle West, all dead now. What part of the Middle West? San Francisco. I see. My family all died and I came into a good deal of money. After that I lived like a young Raja in all the capitals of Europe. Paris, Venice, Rome. Trying to forget something very sad that had happened to me long ago. Then came the war, old sport. It was a great relief and I tried very hard to die, but I seemed to bear an enchanted life. I accepted a commission as first lieutenant when it began. In the Argonne Forest, I took two machine gun detachments on a risky maneuver, and I was promoted to be major, and every Allied government gave me a decoration. Here, I carry it with me. That's the one from Montenegro. Turn it. Major J. Gatsby, for Valor Extraordinary. Hmm. Here's another thing I always carry. 
a souvenir of Oxford days. It was taken in Trinity Quad. The man on my left is now the Earl of Dorcaster. Is that a cricket bat in your hand? I'm going to make a big request of you today, so I thought you ought to know something about me. I didn't want you to think I was just some nobody. You see, I usually find myself among strangers because I drift here and there trying to forget the sad thing that happened to me. You'll hear about it this afternoon. At lunch? No, this afternoon. I happen to find out that you're taking Miss Baker to tea. Do you mean you're in love with Miss Baker? No, old sport. I'm not, but Miss Baker has kindly consented to speak to you about this matter. I hadn't the faintest idea what this matter was, but I was more annoyed than interested. I hadn't asked Jordan to tea in order to discuss Mr. J. Gatsby. I was sorry I'd ever set foot upon his overpopulated lawn. He wouldn't say another word. His correctness grew on him as we neared the city. Then, the Valley of Ashes opened out on both sides of us, and I had a glimpse of Mrs. Wilson straining at the garage pump with panting vitality as we went by. With fenders spread like wings, we scattered light through half Astoria, only half, for as we twisted among the pillars of the elevated, a frantic policeman rode alongside. All right, old sport. We slowed down. Taking a white card from his wallet, he waved it before the man's eyes. Right you are. Know you next time, Mr. Gatsby. Excuse me. What was that? The picture of Oxford. I was able to do the commissioner a favor once, and he sends me a Christmas card every year. Over the great bridge, with the sunlight through the girders making a constant flicker upon the moving cars, with the city rising up across the river in white heaps and sugar lumps. The city, seen from the Queensborough Bridge, is always the city seen for the first time, and its first wild promise of all the mystery and the beauty in the world. Gatsby had to attend to some business alone, and we arranged to meet in a while. Roaring noon, in a well-fanned 42nd Street cellar, I met Gatsby for lunch. Blinking away the brightness of the street outside, my eyes picked him out obscurely in the anteroom, talking to another man. Mr. Carraway, this is my friend Mr. Wolfsheim. A small, compact older man raised his large head and regarded me with two fine growths of hair which luxuriated in either nostril. After a moment, I discovered his tiny eyes in the half-darkness. So I took one look at him. Mr. Wolfsheim, shaking my hand earnestly, continued. And what do you think I did? What? I inquired politely. But evidently he was not addressing me, for he dropped my hand and covered Gatsby's with his expressive nose. I handed the money to Catspaw, and I said, All right, Catspaw, don't pay him a penny till he shuts his mouth. He shut it then and there. Gatsby took an arm of each of us and moved forward into the restaurant, whereupon Mr. Wolfsheim swallowed a new sentence he was starting. Highballs. This is a nice restaurant here, but I like across the street better. Yes, highballs. It's too hot over there. Hot and small, yes, but full of memories. The old metropole filled with faces, dead and gone. Filled with friends now gone forever. I can't forget so long as I live, 
The night they shot Rosie Rosenthal there, <laughs> there were six of us at the table. Rosie had eat and drunk a lot all evening. When it was almost morning, the waiter came up to him with this funny look. Says, somebody wants to speak to him outside. All right, says Rosie, begins to get up, and I pulled him down in his chair. Let the bastards come in here if they want you, Rosie, but don't you so help me move outside this room. <laughs> it was four o'clock in the morning then. If we'd have raised the blinds, we'd have seen daylight. Did he go? <laughs> sure he went. He turned around to the door and he says, Don't let the waiter take away my coffee. <laughs> then he went out on the sidewalk. They shot him three times in his full belly and drove away. <laughs> I understand you're looking for a business connection. Oh, no. This isn't the man. No? This is just a friend. I told you we'd talk about that some other time. Oh, I beg your pardon. I had a wrong man. A succulent hash arrived, and Mr. Wolfshine began to eat with ferocious delicacy. His eyes, meanwhile, roved very slowly around the room. I think that, except for my presence he would have taken one short glance beneath the table. Look here, old sport. I'm afraid I made you a little angry this morning in the car. There was the smile again, but this time I held out against it. I don't like mysteries, and I don't understand why you won't come out frankly and tell me what you want. Why has it all got to come through Miss Baker? Oh, it's nothing underhand. Miss Baker's a great sportswoman, you know, and she'd never do anything that wasn't all right. I have enjoyed my lunch, and I'm going to run off from you two young men before I outstay my welcome. Don't hurry, Meyer. You're very polite, but I belong to another generation. You sit here and discuss your sports and your young ladies and your... Well, as for me, I am fifty years old, and I won't impose myself on you any longer. He becomes very sentimental sometimes. This is one of his sentimental days. He's quite a character around New York. A denizen of Broadway. Who is he, anyhow? An actor? No. A dentist? Mayor Wolfsheim. <laughs> no. He's a gambler. He's the man who fixed the World Series back in 1919. Fixed the World Series? How did he happen to do that? I mean, he just saw the opportunity. Why isn't he in jail? They can't get him, old sport. He's a smart man. I insisted on paying the check. As the waiter brought my change, I caught sight of Tom Buchanan across the crowded room. Come along with me for a minute. I've got to say hello to someone. When he saw us, Tom jumped up and took half a dozen steps in our direction. Where have you been? Daisy's furious because you haven't called up. This is Mr. Gatsby, Mr. Buchanan. They shook hands briefly, and a strained, unfamiliar look of embarrassment came over Gatsby's face. How have you been anyhow? How'd you happen to come up this far to eat? I've been having lunch with Mr. Gatsby. I turned toward Mr. Gatsby, but he was no longer there. It was that evening, after refreshment, I sat with Jordan. I asked what transpired that evening at Gatsby's party. She felt the need to begin five years ago. One October day in 1917 at Daisy Fay's house. She was just 18, two years older than me, and by far the most popular of all the young girls in Louisville. 
She dressed in white and had a little white roadster, and all day long the telephone rang in her house and excited young officers from Camp Taylor demanded the privilege of monopolizing her that night. When I came opposite her house that morning, her white roadster was beside the curb, and she was sitting in it with a lieutenant I had never seen before. They were so engrossed in each other that she didn't see me until I was five feet away. Hello, Jordan. Please come here. Are you going to the Red Cross to make bandages? Would you be so kind as to tell them I won't be making it today? The officer looked at Daisy while she was speaking in a way that every young girl wants to be looked at sometime. And because it seemed romantic to me, I have remembered the incident ever since. His name was Jay Gatsby. Yes, and I didn't lay eyes on him again for over four years. Even after I met him at Long Island, I didn't realize it was the same man. After that, I began to play in tournaments, so I didn't see Daisy very often. Wild rumors were circulating about her. How her mother had found her packing her bag one winter night to go to New York and say goodbye to a soldier who was going overseas. She was effectually prevented. She had a debut after the armistice, and in June, she married Tom Buchanan of Chicago with more pomp and circumstance than Louisville ever knew before. The day before the wedding, he gave her a string of pearls valued at $350,000. I was a bridesmaid in Daisy and Tom's wedding, and when I came into her room half an hour before the bridal dinner... I found her lying on her bed, drunk as a monkey. Here, dearies, take these pearls downstairs and give them back to whoever they belong to. Tell them all daisies change your mind. Say, daisies change your mind. <laughs> Next day at five o'clock, she married Tom Buchanan without so much as a shiver. I saw them in Santa Barbara when they came back from their honeymoon, and I thought I'd never seen a girl so mad about her husband. If he left the room for a minute, she'd look around uneasily. She'd wear the most abstracted expression until she saw him coming in the door. That was in August. A week after I left Santa Barbara, Tom ran into a wagon on the Ventura Road one night and ripped a front wheel off his car. <laughs> the girl who was with him got into the papers, too, because her arm was broken. She was one of the chambermaids in the Santa Barbara Hotel. The next April, Daisy had her little girl, and they went to France for a year. I saw them one spring in Cannes, and then... They came back to Chicago to settle down. Well, about six weeks ago, she heard the name Gatsby for the first time in years. It was when I asked you, do you remember, if you knew Gatsby in West Egg? After you had gone home, she came into my room and woke me up and said, What Gatsby? And when I described him, I was half asleep, she said in the strangest voice that it must be the man she used to know. It wasn't until then that I connected this Gatsby with the officer in her white car. 
What a strange coincidence. But it wasn't a coincidence at all. Gatsby bought that house so that Daisy would be just across the bay. Then it had not been merely the stars to which he had aspired on that June night. He came alive to me, delivered suddenly from the womb of his purposeless splendor. He wants to know if you'll invite Daisy to your house some afternoon and then let him come over. The modesty of the demand shook me. He had waited five years and bought a mansion where he dispensed starlight to casual moths so that he could come over some afternoon to a stranger's garden. Did I have to know all this before he could ask such a little thing? He's afraid. He's waited so long. He thought you might be offended. You see, he's a regular tough underneath it all. Why didn't he ask you to arrange a meeting? He wants her to see his house, and your house is right next door. I think you have expected her to wander into one of his parties some night, but she never did. Then he began asking people casually if they knew her, and I was the first one he found. It was that night he sent for me at his dance, and you should have heard the elaborate way he worked up to it. When I said you were a particular friend of Tom's, he started to abandon the whole idea. He doesn't know very much about Tom, though he says he's read a Chicago paper for years, just on the chance of catching a glimpse of Daisy's name. Daisy ought to have something in her life. Does she want to see Gatsby? She's not to know about it. Gatsby doesn't want her to know. You are just supposed to invite her to tea. It was dark now, and as we dipped under a little bridge, I put my arm around Jordan's golden shoulder and drew her toward me and asked her to dinner. Suddenly I wasn't thinking of Daisy and Gatsby anymore, but of this clean, hard, limited person who dealt in universal skepticism and who leaned back jauntingly just within the circle of my arm. A phrase began to beat in my ears with a sort of heady excitement. There are only the pursued, the pursuing, the busy, and the tired. When I came home with West Egg that night, I was afraid for a moment that my house was on fire. Two o'clock, and the whole corner of the peninsula was blazing with light which fell unreal on the shrubbery and made thin, elongating glints upon the roadside wires. Turning a corner, I saw that it was Gatsby's house, lit from tower to cellar. At first I thought it was another party, but there wasn't a sound. As my taxi groaned away, I saw Gatsby walking toward me across his lawn. Your place looks like the world's fair. Does it? I've been glancing into some of the rooms. Let's go to Coney Island, old sport, in my car. It's too late. Well, suppose we take a plunge in the swimming pool. I haven't made use of it all summer. I've got to go to bed. All right. He waited, looking at me with suppressed eagerness. I talked with Miss Baker. I'm going to call up Daisy tomorrow and invite her over here to tea. Oh, that's all right. I don't want to put you to any trouble. What day would suit you? What day would suit 
you. I don't want to put you to any trouble, you see. How about the day after tomorrow? I want to get the grass cut. I suspected that he meant my grass. There's another little thing. Would you rather put it off for a few days? Oh, it isn't about that. At least, why, I thought... Why, look here, old sport. You don't make much money, do you? Not very much. This seemed to reassure him, and he continued more confidently. I thought you didn't. If you'll pardon my, uh, you see, I carry on a little business on the side, a sort of sideline, you understand. And I thought that if you didn't make very much, uh, you're selling bonds, aren't you, old sport? Trying to. Well, this would interest you. It wouldn't take up much of your time, and you might pick up a nice bit of money. It happens to be a rather confidential sort of thing. I realize now that under different circumstances, that conversation might have been one of the crises of my life. But because the offer was obviously and tactlessly for a service to be rendered, I had no choice except to cut him off there. I've got my hands full. I'm much obliged, but I couldn't take on any more work. He waited a moment longer, hoping I'd begin a conversation. But I was too absorbed to be responsive, so he went unwillingly home. I called up Daisy from the office next morning and invited her to come to tea. I awkwardly asked her to come alone. Don't bring Tom. <laughs> what? Don't bring Tom. Who is Tom? The day agreed upon was pouring rain. At eleven o'clock, a man in a raincoat dragging a lawnmower tapped at my front door and said that Mr. Gatsby had sent him over to cut my grass. At two o'clock, a greenhouse arrived from Gatsby's with innumerable receptacles to contain it. An hour later, the front door opened nervously, and Gatsby, in a white flannel suit, silver shirt, and gold-colored tie, hurried in. He was pale, and there were dark signs of sleeplessness beneath his eyes. Is everything all right? The grass looks fine, if that's what you mean. What grass? Oh, the grass in the yard looks very good. One of the papers said they thought the rain would stop about four. I think it was the journal. Have you got everything you need in the shape of, uh, of tea? Together we scrutinized the twelve lemon cakes from the delicatessen shop. Will they do? Of course, of course, they're fine. The rain cooled about half past three to a damp mist through which occasional thin drops swam like dew. Gatsby looked with vacant eyes through a copy of Clay's Economics. Finally, he got up and informed me in an uncertain voice that he was going home. Why's that? Nobody's coming to tea. It's too late. I can't wait all day. Don't be silly. It's just two minutes to four. He sat down miserably, as if I had pushed him. And simultaneously, there was the sound of a motor turning into my lane. We both jumped up and, a little harrowed myself, I went out into the yard. Under the dripping, bare lilac trees, a large, open car was coming up the drive. It stopped. Daisy's face, tipped sideways beneath a three-cornered lavender hat, looked out at me with a bright, ecstatic smile. Is this absolutely where you live, my dearest one? The exhilarating ripple of her voice was at a wild tonic in the rain. Her hand was wet with glistening drops as I took it to help her from the car. 
Are you in love with me? Or why did I have to come alone? That's the secret of Castle Rack, Rent. Tell your chauffeur to go far away and spend an hour. Come back in an hour, Ferdy. His name is Ferdy. Does the gasoline affect his nose? I don't think so. Why? We went in. To my overwhelming surprise, the living room was deserted. Well, that's funny. What's funny? She turned her head as there was a light, dignified knocking at the front door. I went out and opened it. Gatsby, pale as death, with his hands plunged like weights in his coat pockets, was standing in a puddle of water glaring tragically into my eyes. With his hands still in his coat pockets, he stalked by me into the hall, turned sharply as if he were on a wire, and disappeared into the living room. It wasn't a bit funny. Aware of the loud beating of my own heart, I pulled the door to against the increasing rain. For half a minute there wasn't a sound. Then, from the living room, I heard a sort of choking murmur and part of a laugh followed by Daisy's voice on a clear, artificial note. I certainly am awfully glad to see you again. A pause. It endured horribly. I had nothing to do in the hall, so I went into the room. Gatsby, his hands still in his pockets, was reclining against the mantelpiece in a strained counterfeit of perfect ease, even of boredom. His distraught eyes stared down at Daisy, who was sitting, frightened but graceful, on the edge of a stiff chair. We've met before? We haven't met for many years. Five years next November. The automatic quality of Gatsby's answers set us all back at least another minute. Gatsby got himself into a shadow while Daisy and I talked and looked conscientiously from one to the other of us with tense, unhappy eyes. However, as calmness wasn't an end in itself, I made an excuse at the first possible moment and got to my feet. Where are you going? I'll be back. I've got to speak to you about something before you go. He followed me wildly into the kitchen, closed the door. Oh, God. What's the matter? This is a terrible mistake. A terrible, terrible mistake. You're just embarrassed, that's all. Daisy's embarrassed, too. She's embarrassed? Just as much as you are. Don't talk so loud. You're acting like a little boy. Not only that, but you're rude. Daisy's sitting in there all alone. He raised his hand to stop my words, looked at me with unforgettable reproach, and, opening the door cautiously, went back into the other room. I walked out the back way, just as Gatsby had when he had made his nervous circuit of the house. Sheltering beneath the black oak while the rain continued, it seemed the murmur of their voices were rising and swelling a little now and then, with gusts of emotion. After a while, the rain stopped and the sun shone, but in the new silence I felt that silence had fallen within the house, too. It was time I went back. I went in, after making every possible noise in the kitchen short of pushing over the stove. But I don't believe they heard a sound. 
They were sitting at either end of the couch, looking at each other, and every vestige of embarrassment was gone. Daisy's face was smeared with tears, and when I came in, she jumped up and began wiping at it with her handkerchief before a mirror. But there was a change in Gatsby that was simply confounding. He literally glowed. Without a word or a gesture of exultation, and a new well-being radiated from him and filled the little room. Oh, hello, old sport. It stopped raining. Has it? What do you think of that? It stopped raining. I'm glad, Jay. I want you and Daisy to come over to my house. I'd like to show her around. You're sure you want me to come? Absolutely, old sport. Daisy went upstairs to wash her face while Gatsby and I waited on the lawn. My house looks well, doesn't it? See how the whole front of it catches the light? It took me just three years to earn the money that bought it. I thought you inherited your money. I did, uh, old sport. But I lost most of it in the big panic. The panic of the war. Do you mean you've been thinking over what I proposed the other night? Before I could answer, Daisy came out. That huge place there. Do you like it? I love it, but I don't see how you live there all alone. I keep it always full of interesting people, night and day. People who do interesting things, celebrated people. Instead of taking the shortcut along the sound, we went down the road and entered by the big postern. With enchanting murmurs, Daisy admired this aspect or that. We went upstairs through period bedrooms swathed in rose and lavender silk and vivid with new flowers, through dressing rooms and pool rooms and bathrooms with sunken baths. He hadn't once ceased looking at Daisy, and I think he revalued everything in his house according to the measure of response it drew from her. Sometimes, too, he stared around at his possessions in a dazed way, as though... In her presence, none of it was any longer real. Once, he nearly toppled down a flight of stairs. His bedroom was the simplest room of all. Daisy took the brush with delight and smoothed her hair, whereupon Gatsby sat down and shaded his eyes and began to laugh. (laughs) It's the funniest thing, old sport. I can't, when I try to... He had passed visibly through two states and was entering upon a third. He was consumed with wonder at her presence. He had been full of the idea so long, dreamed it right through to the end, that now, in the reaction, he was running down like an overwound clock. Recovering himself in a minute, he opened for us two hulking patent cabinets. I've got a man in England who buys me clothes. He sends over a selection of things at the beginning of each season, spring and fall. He took out a pile of shirts and began throwing them, one by one before us, covering the table in many-colored disarray. He brought more, and the soft, rich heap mounted higher, shirts with stripes and scrolls and plaids and coral and apple green and lavender and faint orange with monograms of Indian blue. Suddenly, with a strained sound, Daisy bent her head into the shirts and began to cry stormily. 
They're such beautiful shirts. It makes me sad because I've, I've never seen such beautiful shirts before. After the house, we were to see the grounds and the swimming pool. But it began to rain again, so we stood in a row looking at the corrugated surface of the sound. If it wasn't for the mist, we could see your home across the bay. You always have a green light that burns all night at the end of your dock. Daisy put her arm through his abruptly, but he seemed absorbed in what he had just said. Possibly it had occurred to him that the colossal significance of that light had now vanished forever. Look at this. Here's a lot of clippings about you. They stood side by side examining it when the phone rang and Gatsby took up the receiver. Yes? Well, I can't talk now. I can't talk now, old sport. Come here, quick. The rain was still falling, but the darkness had parted in the west, and there was a pink and golden billow of foamy clouds above the sea. Look at that. I'd like to just get one of those pink clouds and put you in it and push you around. I tried to go then, but they wouldn't hear of it. Perhaps my presence made them feel more satisfactorily alone. I know what we'll do. We'll have Clip Springer play the piano. Going! An embarrassed, slightly worn young man with shell-rimmed glasses and scanty blonde hair appeared, clothed in a sport shirt open at the neck, sneakers, and duck trousers of a nebulous hue. Did we interrupt your exercises? I was asleep. That is, I'd been asleep, and then I got up. Clipspringer plays the piano, don't you, ooing old sport? I don't play well. I don't... I hardly play at all. I'm... I'm all out of practice. We'll go downstairs. He flipped a switch. The gray windows disappeared as the house glowed full of light. In the music room, Gatsby turned on a solitary lamp beside the piano. He lit Daisy's cigarette from a trembling match and sat down with her on a couch far across the room. I'm all out of practice, you see. I told you I couldn't play. I'm all out of practice. Don't talk so much, old sport. Outside, the wind was loud and there was a faint flow of thunder along the sound. As I went over to say goodbye, I saw that the expression of bewilderment had come back into Gatsby's face, as though a faint doubt had occurred to him as to the quality of his present happiness. Almost five years! There must have been moments, even that afternoon, when Daisy tumbled short of the colossal vitality of his illusion. No amount of fire or freshness can challenge what a man will store up in his ghostly heart. I looked once more at them, and they looked back at me, remotely, possessed by intense life. Then I went out of the room and down the marble steps into the rain, leaving them there together.
This concludes part two of the Columbus Civic Theater's production of F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. For upcoming installments, cast bios, ways to donate, and other information, please visit our website, www.columbuscivic.org.